Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Predators. Their acts are evil. We call them monsters. We say no human could perpetrate the crimes they have committed. But in truth, only human beings execute these horrific acts. And if you're like me, you want to know why. I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice. contains depictions of homicide that may be particularly graphic that some listeners may find disturbing. If this may be triggering, please practice self-care and do not proceed. Eli cocked his head slightly at the request. Prussic acid wasn't available without a doctor's orders, and he told her so. I need it to put on the edge of a sealskin cape. This seemed odd to Eli as well, Not that he knew anything about the effects of prussic acid on a sealskin cape, but he had never had such a request before. Cleaning and preserving furs was a normal function of the later 19th century life, but acid? I've purchased it without incident on several prior occasions, she insisted. As he studied her, he noticed, quote, her peculiar expression around the eyes. He stood firm, and she relented and left the shop without her desired purchase. The whole incident was clear, but the woman didn't return. Born into wealth, her life wasn't without hardship and heartache. At merely three years old, her mother succumbed to, quote, uterine congestion and disease of the spine, leaving her father Andrew a widower in the care of two daughters. His own background had been one of affiliation with affluence, but his own family had fallen on hard times in his youth and had abandoned their elite position on the hill where his cousins remained, the foremost of the Protestant elite. He was determined not to suffer the same financial woes and had truly committed himself to becoming a self-made man. Starting out as a cabinet maker, he constructed the furniture for the living and dead alike, ostensibly becoming the town's undertaker, a pursuit with no shortage of customers. 
As his wealth accumulated, he forayed into diverse commercial ventures, including serving as the president of the Union Savings Bank, serving on the board of trustees, became a director for the Merchants Manufacturing Company, the BMC Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company, the Globe Yarn Mill Company, and the Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufactory, in addition to his real estate holdings, for which he, quote, never made a purchase of land for which he was not ready to pay cash down. Throughout his building of fortune, Andrew never borrowed a solitary penny. But like many who came of age during the later Great Depression, he, unlike many of the generationally wealthy, truly understood the value of a cent. Tall, gaunt, and angular in appearance, Phrenologists would have considered him a stellar example of the popular pseudoscience of the time, as his personality matched his appearance to a T. A former neighbor once said of him, quote, "Use a plain living man with rigid ideas and very set. An estranged brother-in-law, Hiram Harrington, remarked, quote, He was too hard for me. He was commonly referred to as close-fisted, a spendthrift, and tight. Despite his hard-earned quarter-million-dollar fortune, a sum of over $10 million in today's currency, he lived in the mid-range quarters of the city's residential area, alongside the more established Irish immigrants and lesser Protestant families. His home was renovated, two-story, dual-family abode, creating a single-family home. During the renovation upstairs, faucets were removed, and the soapstone sinks in the kitchen and cellar cold water only, were the only running water available. After connecting to the city water supply, they also had use of a single flushable toilet in the cellar. But aside from these conveniences, the family lived largely as they had before such luxuries were available. When Andrew's youngest daughter was three years old, he remarried a 37-year-old woman, as he determined he needed a housekeeper and his children needed a mother. The marriage was one of convenience more than love, but a hard prospect for the spinster to pass up. Her entree to the family, however, was not warmly received. His eldest daughter, by then fourteen, refused to call her mother, instead addressing her by her first name. She resented having a new presence in her and her sister's lives, considering her a usurper of her own beloved mother's rightful place. Further, Her mother had made her promise to take care of her baby sister, and she may very well have disliked the perceived competition for the child's affections. Though the youngest did call her mother, her older sister truly continued to be her confidant and mother figure. The woman also received a pittance of four dollars per week to take care of the household needs and anything else she desired, a sum inferior to the wages of a female spinner in the textile mills. Despite the chilly relationship between stepmother and children, the youngest was very obviously a daddy's girl, and their relationship was close. Though he never wore a wedding ring, when the child bought him a thin gold ring, he never took it off. Her middle name was Andrew, after her father, and she shared his straightforwardness. She recalled her father being, quote, "'Close in money matters, but I never asked him for anything that I wanted very much that I didn't get.' though sometimes I had to ask two or three times. As she grew older, their closeness continued on full display. 
Just prior to her 30th birthday, he sent her on a tour of Europe with likewise single friends, and upon her return home, he gifted her a beautiful sealskin cape, the extravagance of which was unprecedented. Though there is no existing indication of why he bestowed such gifts, it certainly was a sign of his preference for her. When, in 1982, the family home was repainted, he advised the painter that his daughter, quote, was to select the color, and I better not go on with it, until the color was determined. She did, in fact, supervise the mixing of colors until the result was to her liking. As the girls grew into womanhood and established themselves, their mother's lot hardly improved. Her half-sister Sarah, upon the death of their father, could not buy her own stepmother's half of the estate he had left them. She entreated Andrew to buy it, which he did, essentially allowing Sarah and her husband to live in the home for free. Andrew's daughters were livid and weren't subtle about the slight. To appease them, Andrew transferred estates of equal value into their names. But they weren't happy. So incensed were the girls that their housekeeper began to serve two sittings of each meal because the women refused to eat with their parents. The youngest made an abrupt change at this point, calling the woman by Mrs. and her surname instead of Mother, and emphasizing step to anyone who mistakenly called her father's wife her mother. She once chastised her dressmaker for the slip-up, saying, quote, Don't say that to me, for she is a mean, good-for-nothing thing. Barely a year following his daughter's return from Europe, Captain Dennis Desmond was summoned to the family home regarding a strange occurrence. Andrew's wife's jewelry drawer had been rifled through and was missing several items, as well as Andrew's own desk having been stripped of around $80 in paper currency, $25 to $30 in gold, and several commemorative streetcar tickets. The incident occurred midday, but neither daughter nor the house servant appeared to have heard nor noticed anything. If, in fact, a break-in had occurred, it was noticed the entry could only have been made through the youngest daughter's room, and Andrew reiterated multiple times that the police would likely not be able to find the real thief. He called off the investigation. His wife had her suspicions, knowing just how much her stepdaughters abhorred her, but she felt their frigidity was nothing more than a frustrating daily struggle. It was early August, however, when she began to feel something more sinister maybe at play. The family dined on leftover swordfish, which, in the heat, like milk, was probably a bad choice. Food poisoning was not uncommon in the area, referred to colloquially as the summer complaint, and yet that evening, in absence of the eldest daughter, the parents spent a sleepless night succumbing to nausea and intense chills and sweating. The youngest daughter and the house servant also suffered, but to a far lesser degree. The following morning, the woman crossed the street to her doctor's house, sharing with him her fears that she had been poisoned. When she recounted the prior evening's events, the doctor reassured her, but upon her insistence accompanied her to the residence to assess her husband. Andrew was having none of it, and refused him entry, as well as any pay for the visit. Perhaps it might have passed into obscurity 
if not for the very night after, the family dined on mutton stew. The malady returned to everyone but the youngest daughter. She spent the evening outside of the home visiting a friend, confessing she believed the milk had been poisoned, and that her idea was predicated on nebulous threats that had been made against her father. Both women knew, as did all of the settlement, that Andrew was considered dislikable and his cheap and hard-nosed ways had garnered no shortage of enemies on the road to wealth. Her friend remarked on the absurdity of the thought, assuring her no one is intending to harm him, and the milk had probably spoiled, and the timing was just a strange coincidence. The youngest daughter couldn't put it out of her mind, telling her friend, quote, I feel as if something is hanging over me that I cannot throw off, and it comes over me at times no matter where I am. I don't know but that somebody will do something. Adelaide Churchill was the daughter of a former mayor, whose importance had been reduced to taking in boarders to earn her keep. Her father, having been a politician and always scoping for new faces needing of lodging, she made it her business to keep a sharp eye on the neighborhood. It was late in the morning on August 4th. She noticed her next-door neighbor looking distressed as she stood in the doorway just inside the screen door of her home. She called out with concern to the younger woman to see if she could ascertain what was the matter. The response was far beyond what she could have imagined. Quote, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Chief Marshal Rufus Hilliard was nearly alone on duty that day, the others of the police force celebrating their annual picnic at Rocky Point. When the call came in about an incident at Andrew's home, he sent a single officer to the scene. The patrolman, George Allen, took nearly four minutes to arrive at the residence to assess the situation, but upon his arrival, he entered into a surreal world in which nothing was as it seemed. No disturbance, no weapon, no sign of forced entry, no one having heard or seen anything, including those who had been home at the time of the crime. And yet there, lounging on the sitting-room sofa, was the body of Andrew, surrounded by a wild spatter of blood, his head and face so obliterated, he was unrecognizable. Hilliard recruited an ornamental painter and nosy passerby to stand guard over the scene while he returned to the police station for backup. Charles Sawyer likely wished he hadn't been quite so inclined towards his curiosity that day, as he ended up posted up at the home for a solid seven hours, terrified the killer would return. Inside the home, Mrs. Churchill asked her younger neighbor where she had been, to which she responded she'd been in the barn looking for a piece of iron to make a sinker. For those unacquainted, this is a wait for a fishing line. But heard a strange noise and returned to the house to see what it could be. Noting the absence of the matriarch of the home, Mrs. Churchill inquired after her. The younger woman told her that her stepmother had received a note from an ailing friend and had gone out earlier in the morning. By this time, her close friend Alice and Dr. Seabury Bowen had arrived on the scene, and Dr. Bowen set about examining Andrew's corpse. It was in his absence the housekeeper realized the matriarch was still missing, 
and Andrew's distraught daughter claimed she believed the woman had returned home and gone upstairs. A bizarre omission, if true. As Andrew's wife had not emerged amidst the commotion, the women present agreed they needed to ascend the stairs in search of her. Clutching one another, the housekeeper and Miss Churchill crept slowly up the steps, but made it only high enough to, quote, clear her eyes above the second floor before they clearly spotted a prone body on the floor of the guest bedroom. As the gruesome discovery was shared to those assembled, the young woman cried out, quote, Oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. Dr. Bowen initially thought the woman had died of fright, finding her face down in a pool of coagulated blood, and at first did not try to move the body. When officers Michael Mullally and Patrick H. Doherty arrived and turned the body over, it was clear fright had not been the cause of death after all. Dr. Bowen recounted, quote, Physician that I am, and accustomed to all sorts of horrible sights, it sickened me. Word spread like wildfire over the town. Violent crime was rare in the area as it was, but the sheer brutality of the slayings of the elderly couple created all manner of rumor and suspicion. By the end of the first day, hundreds had gathered, and by the next morning, over 1,500 people would surround the front of the home. Led by Assistant Marshal John Fleed, officers constructed a timeline of the crimes. The elderly couple, still nursing, supposed food poisoning, took their breakfast around 7 a.m. with their house guest, John V. Morse, Andrew's brother-in-law, a meal consisting of cold mutton, mutton soup left over from the prior evening, Johnny cakes, a sort of cornbread-style pancake, coffee, and tea. Morse left at roughly 8.45 a.m. to visit a relative nearby, at 8.50, the youngest daughter took a light breakfast of cookies and coffee alone, as her sister had been visiting relatives for the prior two weeks. At 9.15, Andrew departed for a downtown business meeting, just before his wife attended to changing the upstairs bedroom linens. It was at this time, in the guest bedroom, she was struck down. The 19 sharp force injuries had shattered her skull and separated, quote, a flap of her skin from her back. At 10.45 a.m., Andrew returned to the home, struggling with the door, unaware it had been bolted from the inside. The house servant similarly struggled to unbolt the door, cursing as she did. The youngest daughter was descending the stairs and laughed from the front landing, which was directly opposite the open door of the guest bedroom in which her stepmother lay dead in a pool of blood. Andrew took his bedroom key from its typical day placement on the mantel in the sitting room and ascended the back stairs to his bedroom. As he reemerged on the bottom floor, his daughter greeted him and asked if the mail had brought anything of interest. He asked after his wife, to which his daughter replied that she had gone to check on a sick friend after receiving a note that morning. It is assumed that a mid-morning nap was not unusual or at least not surprising that day, as it warranted no comment from either the house servant or his daughter, and around 11 a.m. he removed his coat, 
arranged it beneath his head, and laid down to do just that. Before 11.45, he was slain, receiving ten sharp force wounds to the head and face. Fairly straightforward, right? Well, not exactly. The simplicity of the timeline begged an obvious question for which there was no ready answer. How did two brutal murders occur in the space of just over two and a half hours without notice of either of the women in the home when they happened? If it was not someone who resided in the home, wouldn't he have had to hide from the women for at the very least an hour and a half? Where? And if hiding was important, wouldn't the guest bedroom door have been closed instead of left ajar? Both the cellar door and front door were locked, and the side door was typically within view of the daily chores to which the housekeeper attended. Even if Andrew was slightly more convenient to attack, his wife was upstairs in the guest bedroom. And not to be incredulous about no one having heard a sound, but his wife was barely five feet tall and over two hundred pounds in an upstairs room. Nobody heard her fall? It was with these questions in mind that detectives began to unravel the evidence that existed, and it was a path that would unearth countless theories and potential assailants. But the most shocking of all was the youngest daughter herself, Lizzie Andrew Borden. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm so humbled by your ongoing support and encouragement. I hope you will join me for part two of this series in which we will begin our own investigation into the carnage wrought against Andrew and Abby Borden, starting naturally with the autopsies. Until then, I'm Ariel Cooksey, and this is Malice. (laughs) 